It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. I last spoke to Kevin T. Carter in October last year, that time to discuss his original Emerging Markets Internet and E-Commerce ETF, EMQQ, a fund with over $759 million in net assets. This time we caught up to discuss his second ETF. FMQQ was launched late last year and offers exposure to the internet and e-commerce sectors of the developing world, but this time focusing on frontier markets, and perhaps more pertinently, excluding China. I asked Kevin why McKinsey have identified the digital consumer revolution in the developing world as the biggest growth opportunity in the history of capitalism. We discuss his recent trip to South America, where he visited several companies in the current FMQQ portfolio, and we finish by looking ahead identifying the investment themes most exciting Kevin right now. Enjoy. Welcome, Kevin. It's great to have you on the show. So how are things in San Francisco at the moment? Well, things are great. It looks like it's going to be 80 degrees today and nice and sunny. So it's a good, uh, good time to be here in San Francisco. Lovely. Yeah. And you're speaking to me at a time when London is also sunny. I mean, not to that level, but it is actually quite nice here for once and not raining. So, uh, so that's no bad thing. Um, but let's, let's get into the, the meat of the interview and start with a question that won't necessarily flow chronologically, but it will give listeners an early indication of one of the focuses of today's interview. Uh, and I, I've broken that, that first question into two parts. Firstly, why offer investment exposure to the developing world's internet and e-commerce sector? What's the story there? Well, the story of emerging markets, e-commerce, and the internet sector in emerging markets is uh, probably the biggest growth sector in the world today. And I think over the last decade, it may have been the fastest growing sector in the world ever. I mean, there's been an average of over 35% annualized revenue growth for the sector. And it's really, it's about three things that are happening in emerging markets. And let me first say that, that you know, I've been involved with emerging markets for 16 years with a, an emphasis on China. And by far the biggest problem is the indexes are terrible. I mean, the, the indexes, the traditional uh, approaches you get from a iShares or a Vanguard, these efforts to invest in emerging markets that way are bound to continue to fail because they really track the legacy economy and the state-owned banks and oil companies and it's just really not for investors. And that's why, you know, the 15-year return for broad emerging markets is zero, basically. The reason investors ought to be interested in emerging markets is because the thing that's emerging are the billions and billions of people. I mean, this is where 85% of the world's people are, and they're becoming consumers. And they want all the things we take for granted, more and better food, clothing, appliances. They want entertainment. They want vacations and, and they want cars and they want their kids to go to college. And that's the story. And but what makes that story even more exciting in the last decade and in the coming decade plus is that all of those billions of consumers, not only are they becoming consumers for the first time, but they're getting their first ever computer in form of a smartphone and they're getting the internet for the first time. And because they've never had a bank account, they don't have a cable TV and there's no Target store to go to, these billions of, of new consumers are leapfrogging to digital consumption and driving what I believe uh, continues to be the fastest growing sector in the world. Yeah, and you alluded to it earlier on in your answer, I think, but why with uh, the, well, if we talk specifically about FMQQ, which is the new fund uh, that you've launched late last year, why exclude China exposure from that fund when obviously EMQQ does offer China exposure? Sure. Well, let me tell you how FMQQ came to be. It was about 13 months ago, one of our partners called and said, hey, we, you know, this EMQQ's done real well. And we think, uh, you know, people are interested in this space. What else can you make? And I 
I said, well, I don't, I don't want to make anything else. I've got the, the best approach and, and why would I uh, tweak it? Uh, but I got basically, I, I got harassed by my partner to, or, or partner to, you know, if you were going to do something, what would it be? And, and so I started looking at it and, and what I realized was, and I had always known this, but China dominates EMQQ. I mean, China's been about two thirds of the portfolio uh, since inception. It's about half of the fund now. And the reason it dominates is because China's e-commerce market is the most developed in the world by far. It's way bigger than the United States. And it's actually four times as big as the other 45 emerging and frontier markets combined. So it really is its own thing. So it's had an outsized impact on both the fundamentals and the market cap of of EMQQ. And the reason that it's so large is because it's developed more than any other. I mean, it's about uh, 30% of retail sales in China are now e-commerce. And when you look at the other 45 countries, it's less than 5%. So the next frontier, the emerging markets beyond China, they're entering the, the steep part of their growth curves. And so I think you are bound to see higher growth rates beyond China and a lot more room to run uh, in terms of e-commerce adoption. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll refer listeners back to our earlier interview we published in October last year, I believe, that we fully sort of focused and covered the uh, EMQQ fund. So people can refer back to that if anything is a little bit unclear in this interview, but hopefully we'll do a good job of explaining both. Uh, but if we focus now on FMQQ, then I just want to get into the the fund's philosophy, I suppose. And we've touched on it there, but I just wonder how much of the philosophy of this fund is about providing non-China exposure versus actually focusing on the long-term potential of this theme in frontier markets exclusively. Perhaps you can talk on that from a sort of top-level, strategic level, I suppose. Sure. Well, look, the, the, the timing of the launch certainly had a lot of people question if we were doing this because we were worried about what people were worried about in China? And the answer to that was decidedly no. Um, but the, look, the reality is, as China has grown to become this economic superpower, and its people have done incredibly well, you know, in terms of increasing their their incomes uh, across the country, but it's come with with other issues. And there's a lot of friction between the United States and China. And there's a lot of fears, and I think most of them are completely unfounded, but they exist. And and I can't, you know, battle every headline about delisting and, and the Chinese government. And so the reality is some investors just don't like the volatility that comes with that. And it's, you know, you can't deny that volatility has existed, in particular the last year so it's about giving investors options. And, you know, I, I think the best way to use uh, FMQQ is, you know, to combine it uh, with EMQQ and you can, you know, dial down your China exposure. But if you just don't want China for any reason, then you have an option to do that. And were you thinking at all about ESG, human rights records, that sort of stuff? Um, you know, naturally, ESG being such a big theme, particularly for retail investors, but institutional as well, was that a consideration when it came to launching FMQQ? It was not a consideration. Now, we try to be as ESG friendly as we can be. Yeah. But the reality is that there are so many problems with the way this ESG thing is getting implemented. And frankly, it's a great idea, but you know, I'm, I'm about intellectual honesty and it's hard to look at what the results are in terms of, you know, how the rankings are done and not see the intellectual dishonesty in the, the black box version of ESG. So what we, what we do as a company, and you can find this on our EMQQ Evolves tab, but we have our own approach to how uh, we as a business can be ESG uh, and also, uh, you know, to the extent we can't affect it in our portfolio uh, that way as well. Yeah, no, I completely understand. I think there's that whole space is, is ripe to be overhauled. Uh, and you do see a lot of firms actually just taking it upon themselves to develop their own philosophies and strategies in terms of ESG. So sounds completely the right way to go. Um, but if we go back to the the underlying investment case here, then this is 
as kind of marketed on your website, the biggest growth opportunity in the history of capitalism. That isn't your quote, I believe. I think you took that from PwC, potentially. Um, no, that's from that's from McKinsey and Company. And w- they're referencing the rise of the emerging market consumer specifically, which, again, in their words, is the biggest growth opportunity in the history of capitalism. Yes. Okay, that's right. So how does that opportunity change or even increase and become more exciting, potentially, when you focus in on just frontier markets? Are you further back in the growth story? How, how does that evolve when you, when you put that lens on it? Well, yes, it, it's early, and 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 again, it that you know, I, even if McKinsey's wrong, and it's the second or third biggest growth opportunity in the history of capitalism, if you're investing in emerging <laughs> markets, it's what you should be completely focused on, yep. and that's what I've been focused on for 16 years. But what makes what's happening now so exciting is the introduction of the computer. Which again, I, you know, I've had a computer for 30 years, and I've had a smartphone for 10, but. You know, there's still billions of people out there that don't have a computer, but they're getting them at an alarming rate. And it's a smartphone in their pocket that's almost certainly running on Android and cost $100 or less. So that is happening. And, you know, again, even China has a lot of people that still don't have a smartphone. But in places like India, you've got a very small uh, smartphone penetration and and you also have very low internet access. But again, it's changing at an incredible rate. And, you know, China had a lot of advantages and it's why China, you know, blew ahead of everybody and became so large. But the rest of the world is just now kind of entering that 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 um, uh, smartphone world and the internet world. And, and the other thing you're seeing, you know, China has an extremely well-developed venture capital uh, system and, a, and, and founders um, that have come out of the earlier uh, China internet companies. This is so new in places like South America. You have these ecosystems of venture funding, of founders that have successfully exited and then become uh, investors themselves or start another company. And it's like this flywheel effect that is, I think, best seen in South America, where Mercado Libre led the way. Um, but you're seeing it all over the place now. Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh, these huge populations, these new consumers and entrepreneurs that are that are leaving uh, Amazon or Facebook or Google and going back to their home markets and and starting these new companies. And there's hundreds and hundreds of unicorns, and and I think we'll see hundreds of IPOs in the FMQQ countries. Uh, in the coming years. Yeah, fantastic. And I believe uh, you've just returned from a trip from South America. I think you were over there uh, for a couple of weeks visiting companies that are um, you're exposed to, sorry, within both EMQQ and FMQQ. Um, and it'll be interesting to just get any anecdotes or any sort of thoughts or insights from your on-the-ground experience whilst you're over there. Was anything that sort of excited you and, and really reinforced your long-term investment case uh, for this fund or for both funds, I suppose? Yes, many things about what I saw excited me and and gave me even more confidence in the case for FMQQ and EMQQ going forward. And I I would say that the first thing is the scale and the density of these megacities. We started in Mexico City. Uh, We went to Bogota, which has almost 10 million people. Uh, Buenos Aires, the same uh, size. Sao Paulo, just you've know, never seen a city sprawl as far as, as Sao Paulo. And so you, the, the scale of this, uh, of these places, and and again the density of the cities, and and the density of cities is very important in the growth of economies, and and certainly in. Uh, the case of e-commerce, and so the scale of of the opportunity uh, was very visible. In Colombia, there's a private company. It's the largest unicorn in Latin America. It's called Rappi, R-A-P-P-I. And, mm. and when, when it comes uh, public, which could be this year, if the market uh, warms up a little bit, we'll add it uh, soon after it uh, comes public. This is a... a you can think of it as a DoorDash. It's a it's a delivery right. company, but they have um, pioneered this new concept 
uh, quick commerce. And when we say quick, we mean real quick. They have uh, a Rapido service, which uh, offers 10 minutes uh, delivery on lots of basic stuff that you might want. And in fact, their average delivery time is 8.3 minutes. And I don't think I've ever been as viscerally affected in terms of seeing e-commerce like out in the real world. Uh, You couldn't look out the window. My room looked over a back alley uh, behind the hotel and even that little back alley, I, I couldn't look out the window for more than 30 seconds without seeing two or three Rappi drivers. And if you went out the front of the hotel, forget it. Uh, there's 20 in view at any given time and they're delivering everything. And, and the people that we spoke to that um, use the, the service, they, you could see how, sort of addicted they'd become to that convenience factor where pretty much anything that you need on a a regular basis can be delivered in eight minutes. And we, in fact, uh, did our own uh, purchases uh, both uh, there in in Bogota, but also uh, in Rio at the beach, we had a couple of beers and a Coca-Cola delivered to us in eight minutes to the beach. So, and, and that is a, you know what? What these emerging markets have, these cities, they have density, and they have low labor costs. And so, all of these delivery people are on bikes, and motorcycles, and scooters, and it's just an incredibly efficient operation. And the other thing that we saw in Colombia as well is just this this ecosystem. Every one of these major companies has what you know what they call their mafia. You know, you have the PayPal mafia which went off and sprouted all sorts of things here in the U.S. But in South America, you had the first uh, big one was Mercado Libre, which was you know, founded uh, in 1999 at Stanford Business School by three Stanford uh, Business School students from South America. And they went back and founded Mercado Libre, which is the Amazon.com and the PayPal of South America, it's headquarters are in Argentina, but its biggest uh, business is in uh, Brazil. And and it, again, this ecosystem idea and this and this sort of flywheel where the the founders of Mercado Libre, a couple of them left a decade ago and started a a venture fund called Cossack, which has gone on to fund other major unicorns that have uh, then gone public and made other fortunes. And that sort of reinforcing cycle is happening. And you've got uh, following out of Brazil, the new bank, the mafia, new banks, the largest online bank in the world that it went public in December. And that ecosystem is, is its own, you know, so-called mafia. And in Colombia, Rappi now has dozens of, of former of founders and employees that have left and started dozens of other companies. And I was stunned to see that there's hundreds just in Colombia of venture funded uh, startups. And so that, that was the other thing that was just so palpable is this spirit of entrepreneurism, this, which is new in these places that, that I I've seen this happen. I've been part of it and now I'm going to go do it myself. Uh, that was something that I took away quite strongly. And then I'd say that the third, and this is actually quite important part of the story, the fintech story is so, so big in the developing world, which is really the biggest paradox. You know, I'm a fintech entrepreneur in San Francisco. Like I, I feel like I should be on the cutting edge of using my smartphone for my financial life. And the reality is I, I use Apple Pay you know, a couple times a week, maybe. So, but this fintech story is so big and Mercado Libre, which again is the e-commerce leader in Latin America, it also has become the fintech leader in Latin America. And just in this past quarter, the fintech business eclipsed the the main business, the e-commerce business. So, and this is not unique to Mercado Libre. Fintech is huge and everybody knows it and everyone's trying to get a piece of it in the developing world. Yeah, fantastic. Really, really interesting. And we'll get into a couple of other uh, constituents within the fund as well. And uh, I'll probably ask you for your 
the, the theme that most excites you towards the end of the episode. So uh, we'll dig into some of those topics then. But I guess we've we've outlined or you've outlined really superbly there why the long-term investment case is very much intact. Um, but if we look at the performance of the fund, you know, it's it's not been great. I mean, year to date, it's down around 26%. Um, so I just wondered, and I was interested to get your perspective kind of on why you think that is what the key sort of contributing factors to that underperformance are. You know, you've got the rotation into value away from growth assets. You've got an inflationary environment that isn't necessarily that kind or conducive to outperformance for a fund like this. But what what would you put it down to and how would you explain that performance, I suppose? Okay, well, I certainly wouldn't put it as nicely as you did. <laughs> uh, I think you said it hasn't been that good. The performance has been a disaster um, over the last... Uh, 13 months and a wipeout. I mean, it, you know, a week ago today, it was a dark day in my career. We were down at one point um, 65 or 66% mm. from last February. And a week ago today, we actually traded at a price below $26, which is where we launched at seven and a half years ago. So, uh, it certainly has not been good. It's been horrendous. And and it's been particularly trying uh, for me personally. I mean, this is my business and my life and my, you know, my, my masterpiece, I believe, still for long-term investors trying to invest in emerging markets. And the reality is that this has been driven by fear. I mean, the fundamentals, frankly, are fine. Yeah. The revenue yeah. growth, for these companies last year was over 30%. So, you know, not a lot of sectors ever grow at 30%. Uh, This sector has grown at that rate for a while. Now that will slow down, but still the fundamental story is fine. But yet this chart would make you think these companies are on the verge of collapse. And so you've had a confluence of fear that is I've never seen before. And it has two principal parts to it. The the first uh, part of it, and I think the biggest part of it now, is this delisting fear. The fear that the U.S.-listed Chinese companies are going to get delisted. And this is the most, um, I've never seen so much fear and focus on something that's so meaningless and, and so misunderstood and and such a non-risk. I mean, that people... Even professional investors, I've learned, don't understand a lot of the basics of maybe the what we call the plumbing of investing. And you know, where a stock trades really is the, about is the least fundamental thing uh, to worry about. But people hear that word delisting, and they think it means they're going to lose all their money that they own Alibaba stock, and one day it's going to be quote unquote delisted and and that their investment will become worthless. That is not going to happen. Um, and moreover, if you dig into this, all of this delisting thing, it's so misunderstood. It's so intellectually dishonest. The the whole so many parts of it, it just it it bothers me. But I've had to accept that no matter how silly it is, people care and are so afraid of this delisting. And that's what really drove the stocks down further, I think, a couple of weeks ago when the SEC, as part of a three-year-long process to address this thing, uh, they started posting some stuff to the internet about whose annual reports were part of this three-year-long process. And, and people panicked again on this. So the delisting fear... Is has been persistent. It's dumb, but it's real. Um, and so, we, we, even though it, I'm convinced it doesn't change the risk profile at all, we're going to transfer all of our ADRs to Hong Kong listings uh, as that's possible, um, just to appease people, even though it's something that they shouldn't really care about. Um, the second fear that's been persistent in the 16 years I've been involved is. People are afraid of the Chinese government and they think the Chinese government is going to, you know, somehow, some way steal their money or otherwise do something that is going to affect the value of their investments. And, you know, 
uh, I've dealt with that fear for 16 years. Uh, it's just a, something that everybody seems to come preconditioned with. And what China's done in the last year is to start to regulate um, a little better some of the e-commerce and in particular the fintech sectors. And, and people think this is an attack on capitalism. And they think that, oh, my gosh, you know, Jack Ma's missing or the Chinese government changed the fintech laws because of something Jack Ma said. And these are preposterous things to think in my mind. These tech platforms all over the world, and we've seen it here with our FANG stocks, these companies have grown at an incredible rate and in a decade, plus or minus, you know, when you grow at 30, 40%, you get pretty big in a decade. And so they've become massive and powerful businesses. And no regulators anywhere in the world have been able to keep up with them. And that's not a China thing. You can see it in the Wall Street Journal every week that the US FANG stocks are under attack here. They're under attack in Europe. They're paying fines. And the same is the case in China. China is regulating. And I, I all of the things they've done. I think are very smart and practical things uh, for their economy. And these are smart people that run the financial system in China. Most of them, or many of them have gone to our best colleges. Some of them have taught at our best colleges. So they're trying to regulate. And when I look at the specific things that they've done, including the DD situation, I don't have a problem with it. And it hasn't impacted the fundamental story very much, but it doesn't matter. People are in fear mode and you, you've got delisting threats. You have, uh, you know, the Chinese government is, you know, involved. And it's just a, a perfect storm of fear that hopefully uh, peaked last Tuesday, but who knows? But I can tell you the fundamental story remains very strong, no matter what Mr. Market might tell you on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned this sort of low last Tuesday. The fund uh, FMQQ, this is, has bounced uh, around 14%, I think, since last Tuesday when I checked before the call. So, I mean, that you know, that strong, albeit short-term performance. Why has that bounce occurred? Is it simply that it's sort of price action bouncing off a low, or is there some sort of news flow that's um, bolstering the performance? Well, I think that, I mean, in the case of the China which is not part of FMQQ, but I think that it certainly, you know, sentiment in general in these companies seems to not always see the borders between the countries. But um, China is... Well, actually, on on that point, sorry, Kevin, is, um, I, I guess we're talking about China more than I might have expected it. And is that because the market does tend to sort of group these countries together perhaps more than they should? Would that be a fair thing to say? Or, or is that not true in your experience? Um, no, it, it seems that that when the emerging markets internet sector is up or down, they're all kind of up or down. Mm-hmm. Um, China, you know, being the, the one that is, most people are focused on and, and the one that certainly the market is looking at more. Yeah. And so there has been a, a decent correlation. I mean, the whole sector has just been under a lot of pressure and valuations have, have come in. And again, this is what gets me excited. I look at, you know, FMQQ had two very important IPOs in the last nine months. The first one, India's fintech leader Paytm went public in India, and it sort of top-ticked the, the IPO market, and its stock is down 75%. This is a, a company that Berkshire Hathaway is an investor in. And this is, um, again, the, the fintech leader in India and one of the you know larger holdings in FMQQ. Um, and then in Brazil, you have this company, New Bank, which I mentioned earlier. This is the largest online bank in the world. It was funded partially by the Mercado Libre founders and other uh, venture uh, investors. Um, uh, the founder of New Bank went to Har- or went to Stanford rather, and that's one of the th- the profiles of these companies is again that you, you know get the smartest kids from the local you know, whatever country we're talking about, and they're going to our best colleges and working for our best companies, and then going back and, and replicating it. But New Bank uh, it was another company we were so excited for its IPO. Berkshire Hathaway was the last private. Uh, investor before the IPO, and they talked the valuation down about 
25 or 30% before they priced the deal. And the stock's down another 30% since then. So it's selling for, you know, less than half of, of what its valuation was, you know, six or eight months ago. So all of these companies have been under pressure. Um, uh, but the but fundamental story, uh, the growth story remains very, very much intact. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Yeah, fantastic. All right. Well, let's use this juncture then to get into the nuts and bolts of the portfolio construction and and management, I suppose. So firstly, how do you ensure constituents derive their earnings from the targeted theme? Obviously, that being frontier markets, internet and e-commerce. Is there like a minimum revenue contribution or benchmark each company needs to meet perhaps? Yeah, sure. So um, the first rule is that you have to be in emerging markets uh, or or rather a, a, a next frontier emerging market. Uh, internet or e-commerce company. Again, next frontier is you know the the forty five emerging and frontier markets that are not China. So this is an ex China uh, uh, fund, and and the way we measure that is that half of your revenue or, or more has to be from emerging or frontier markets. And now wh- this is another big problem in emerging markets that I, I can't overstate. But the problem with indexing. In emerging markets, first, it's the state-owned enterprises that are the biggest problem. But the second biggest problem is the databases don't always match the reality of where these companies are generating their revenue. Mm. You might have a company that trades in New York, but its business is in India, or uh, it's you know domiciled uh, in Germany, but its revenue is in Southeast Asia. So we don't care about what the database says, and and the database is missing a lot of companies. I mean. Most of the premier FMQQ companies are not included in the MSCI index. In fact, of the 18 Latin American companies that we own, only two of them are in the big index. Mercado Libre is not in the index. New Bank's not in the index. Um, uh, so anyhow, we we don't trust the database. We look at the financial statements and the annual reports to confirm that, in fact, the revenue is coming from emerging markets. And and a lot of times we, they're just we know the companies and we know they're missing in the database or at least the database is seeing them wrong. So that's the first and most important thing. So if you are an emerging or frontier market internet company, uh, then we will own you as long as you meet uh, our market cap and liquidity minimums, which are three hundred million and and one million U.S. dollars daily, uh, respectively. So that's how you get included and. Uh, that number has exploded, by the way. I mean, when we launched, uh, you know, EMQQ seven and a half years ago, there was only twelve non-China companies, and it was just last summer that there are more uh, FMQQ companies now than China companies. So there's uh, getting close to seventy non-China companies in FMQQ, and that number will grow. Uh, India. Uh, could have dozens of IPOs itself in the coming few years. So, so that's how you get included. And then um, we do um, a modified market cap weighting. So the largest position is capped at eight percent, and then we rebalance uh, twice a year: once in June and once in December. Got it. Okay. And uh, yeah, you mentioned there there was close to sort of seventy holdings within the index. You said there, I think that you expect that number to grow over the years, and there's not going to be any upper limit. On it, or do you kind of reserve the right to place an upper limit on the index, you know, in the future? You know, we recognize that our particular part of the investment world is very dynamic. There's a lot of um, a lot of IPOs coming, and mm. we don't have any plans to limit uh, the number of securities or or otherwise uh, change any of the uh, requirements. We could theoretically, we could you know raise the minimum market cap. Uh, for example, but the reality is that uh, these companies are coming public now with you know market caps of ten billion, twenty billion, thirty billion dollars. So there's not a lot of three hundred million dollar public uh, internet companies around. No, yeah, okay, completely take your point. Uh, and it looks like you do have representation kind of right from small cap to large cap. I think you've. Your biggest allocation at the moment is in that large cap, sort of ten to twenty billion range. I think when I was reading before, um, but is there 
is, is that where you expect most of your companies to be within that kind of medium, large cap uh, range? Um, do you expect them to be sort of market leaders, companies with a little bit bigger market share in AUM? I think so. I mean, I think that's the, the nature of any, you know, market cap weighted index. Um, you know, we do own Reliance Industries in India. And now Reliance is, a, is an interesting company. It's a conglomerate that dates back 50 years. It's controlled by the Ambani family. And the traditional or the, the legacy businesses uh, were in petrochemicals and in textiles. But the company's CEO, again, who's the, the grandson now of the founder, he has made a huge push into the digital part of the economy. And geo-digital, which is part of Reliance, we believe is now worth at least half of the value of Reliance industries and it's a it's a very important e-commerce company we think it will be the super app of india uh when all is said and done or at least it appears to be best positioned and this is a company that uh you know includes facebook and google as investors so so that will skew the market cap numbers up a little bit um eventually they'll uh, i think spin off uh, the petrochemical businesses or otherwise make it a pure play on the digital mm. and then I think that, you know, the other uh, big holdings of C Limited, which is out of Southeast Asia, this is another stock that's been under a ton of pressure, but was one of the best performing stocks. In fact, it was neck and neck with Tesla for four or five years, but it's also had a big sell off. Um, That's a company based in Singapore, by the way. So the fact sheet would say Singapore, but it's operating all over Southeast Asia. It just happens to be headquartered in Singapore. And then I think Mercado Libre and Nubank, which are in a the two South American leaders, I think they both will continue to, uh, you know, be the, amongst our largest holdings. Yeah, fantastic. I've got a couple of follow-up questions on a couple more of your holdings. Uh, but just before we move off kind of overall portfolio construction and management, um, we might have referenced it earlier on, but just to dig into uh, how often you rebalance and update the portfolio, obviously that's in line with the index. I believe it's every six months. So, so why did you decide on that cadence? So it's, it's every six months. The trading's done on the third Friday of June and the third Friday of uh, December. And, um, you know, rebalancing, there's no perfect answer to what the right rebalancing schedule is. You can rebalance, you know, on a monthly basis, a quarterly basis. But our experience is that the semi-annual is enough and, you know, limits turnover. You know, one of the other uh, modifications we made to the index is that if, if a company comes public and it has a market value over $10 billion, so if it's, a, if it's a meaningfully sized company, we'll add it after three days uh, of being public. So if, if it's big enough. Okay, fantastic. So to return to the holdings, then we've covered, I think, Reliance. That is your biggest holding at the moment with around about 12.2%. I think your third largest holding and a company that we haven't covered so far is Navacorp, 7.87%. So that's a South Korean internet conglomerate that operates uh, a domestic search engine called Naver. Uh, for anyone, uh, I'm sure some of the listeners might not be familiar with that firm. And it struck me as interesting because I think 27% of your portfolio is made up by South Korean stocks. So firstly, like what tailwinds make you so bullish on South Korea at the moment, if we can start there? Well, let me first point out one uh, thing. South Korea is a controversial emerging market, if you will. Um, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's controversial in that you know, the, the two major index providers are MSCI and FTSE, um, at least for emerging market indexes. And here in the United States, the iShares fund tracks the MSCI index and the Vanguard fund tracks the FTSE. And now most institutions are going to benchmark on the MSCI, but the biggest amount of dollars invested here in the U.S. is in the Vanguard FTSE fund. Uh, FTSE index tracking fund and and FTSE doesn't include Korea. FTSE's uh, belief is that Korea is already a developed market. Um, MSCI doesn't agree, and so we're in this we're in this sort of middle ground where we've included Korea historically, partly because they had you know we didn't 
when we launched, we needed as many companies as we could get to get to that, you know, diversification uh, range we wanted. And so we've always included Korea and, and, you know, the, the, the reason why a lot of people think Korea should be moved uh, into the developed world status is because their per capita GDPs and income are, are high relative to the rest of emerging markets. And, and I think that, you know, one of the problems is, and this is a technical thing, but it's a, a big thing. I suspect at some point it'll be in the newspapers for a week or two. But there's so much money that's benchmarked to the MSCI Emerging Markets Index that when a country uh, gets moved from one index to the other one, when it gets promoted, if you will, it can have huge impact on and, and flows yeah. Uh, from this pocket to that pocket, which can be difficult to manage, and I, I think that that MSCI is af- sort of afraid to address this, you know, uh, p- perhaps growing issue. But but for now, we own uh, Korea. We tried to make our net as broad broad as possible, and and Korea, you know, one thing it has is dense cities and a pretty advanced consumer economy, and so it's got uh you know high income consumers uh they're densely uh packed they're they've uh, always been one of the things i found very shocking in my early emerging market life i went through every single emerging market stock and in particular every single emerging market consumer stock and if i'm i'm pretty sure this is how this was accurate korea had three publicly traded home shopping networks wow. uh, when I looked like 15 years ago, as I just thought was so interesting and maybe indicative of, of their consumption patterns. But, but anyway, we, we do own Naver, we own Cacao. They've had decent success. Uh, Coupang, uh, another uh, fascinating uh, example of a, a localized e-commerce uh, company. And, and, and these companies also have been under a decent amount of pressure, including regulatory pressure. That certainly didn't get as much headlines as the China uh, regulatory issues. But, you know, the Korean Internet companies also uh, had some regulatory pressures on them. Yeah, interesting. And I guess regardless of whether you classify it as emerging or developed you obviously believe there's a long-term growth story there, um, which I guess makes it interesting for the purposes at least of this interview, but um, more pertinently, I guess, for growth investors uh, and the guys listening in. And I, I wondered, you know, there's, there's been a lot of news around South Korea at the moment, not least their recent election of the conservative sort of pro-business presidential candidate recently. Do you pay attention to sort of that news flow and does that inform how you think about South Korea? equities or you know is it just simply the fundamentals of the businesses and the long-term growth opportunity that we've spoken about we focus on the long-term story i mean look the reality is we're going to buy and hold all of these emerging and frontier market internet companies and you know we certainly uh are about as active as you get in terms of understanding our companies yeah. Um, not not just to make sure that we own them all and don't you know miss any, um, but because we're investors and we want to know what's going on with them. And but macro things, you know, individual countries or whether that's you know the elections in Colombia or the big election in Brazil later this year, it's hard to follow all forty five political uh, situations. And and certainly right now. Uh, and over the last few weeks, uh, to the extent we've been focused on anything, uh, it's been the Russia situation, which is a mess on so many fronts, including, uh, you know, for investors in the internet companies uh, like us. No, yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. Um, well, to finish then, let's, let's look ahead, I suppose, and uh, hopefully pick out some interesting companies or, or themes for our investors to to keep their eyes on over the next sort of decade or even multiple decades? Um, it's called D-Local. It has the ticker D-L-O. And this is a company that's headquartered in Montevideo, Uruguay. I was actually at their office two weeks ago. Now, 
This company has one of the most beautiful income statements I've ever seen. It is growing at an incredible rate. It has fantastic margins. And it's a fintech play. And in terms of the sub-themes, I I can't overstate how big fintech is. As everybody in the world skips the bank account and does the money online. And once they get the money online, then you can get into investment products, insurance products, banking and lending. And all of these are high margin businesses, especially in emerging markets. So the fintech story is very big. And now D-Local is, yes, they're in Uruguay. That is where their, their headquarters are. But what they have developed is a localized payments platform in about 30 emerging and frontier markets. And so this is a B2C uh, offering and what they do, they allow our global brands like uh, Uber and Didi, or uh, uh, well, I guess Didi as well, but I think Amazon and, and just a, dozens of global brands are using DLocal to get paid in local currencies. And so they've set up all of the regulatory and banking uh, systems needed in dozens of emerging and frontier markets. So this is a company that's giving you huge diversification of, uh, uh, geographically. It's in a very fast-growing part of the story. It is profitable, and it's growing at an incredible rate. And I think it, it now the stock uh, is also down a lot from its highs. It's up from its lows, but it's a company for long-term investors yeah, fantastic. And my last question was actually to to ask you to pull out a, a theme that you think is interesting uh, for, for, again, particularly long-term investors. And I was going to ask you for a sub-theme within the internet and e-commerce emerging market space, but it seems like you're picking out fintech as the most compelling opportunity. Well, let, let, let me, let, yeah, let, fintech, I'm going to definitely pick out. And I mean, this is this is a very big, big sub-theme, but there's another one that's there's a couple that are evolving in my mind in sort of real time. And some of this was um, based on my time in Latin America. So this quick commerce idea, this 10-minute delivery, this is a big thing. I, I, I sort of discounted it when it started to show up, you know, in, in the media that I follow. But having seen it, in South America and in, in Bogota in particular with Rappi, this, this is a big thing. And it's a lot, you know, the way the United States is laid out, we're, you know, we're pretty spread out. Um, but these dense cities lend themselves so well to things like this quick commerce. And, and so whether it's, you know, getting a couple of beers delivered to the beach in eight minutes, or uh, I lost one of my earbuds or AirPods, uh, on the airplane, so we bought a new pair in Buenos Aires. It arrived in just a few hours. This quick commerce thing is is going to be a big thing, and it's, I'm seeing it in, in uh, companies are flipping their business models in places like Pakistan to to get onto that story. The other thing that I'm seeing, and I, uh, there's probably a term that's being used to capture this, but I, I haven't come across it yet. But but you're seeing there are two private companies that I'm keeping an eye on that I think are interesting. One in Colombia is called Tool, T-U-L, which is basically digitizing hardware stores. One of the things you see in, in, and I saw a lot of this in South America, you go down a street or there'll be a series of streets and there'll be 10 or 15 people that are just selling saws, for example, right? And, they don't really have a Home Depot yet, if you will. There's one way out by the airport, but they don't have that sort of big box sort of, you know, the, the disruption to the, the mom and pop retailers hasn't really happened there. But rather than put these people out of place, tools basically digitizing them. And I'm not sure how they're describing this these types of business models. But the other place that I think it's happening that is so fascinating is in Pakistan. There's a company called Bazaar, B-A-Z-A-A-R. And in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh, which are all, you know, historically sort of just one big group, um, you have these Quranas, these corner stores. 
where you know you just have one guy and a window and he's got the cigarettes and the whatever you know whatever things you'd get at a at a little corner store and there's there's millions of them and what bazaar is doing and 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 for those individual merchants you know there's there's so many layers in the you know for them to source their their cigarettes or their snacks whatever it is there's so many layers in the in the distribution from the manufacturer down to the to the, the mom and pop storefront bazaar is digitizing this and basically providing the fulfillment and keeping their inventory records and predicting when they're going to need more you know soda or cigarettes or whatever it is that they're stocking and then that's also putting their businesses that used to be on paper um, in a digitized fashion so they can see their their profits and their losses and their revenues and 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 then start to lend money to them. And so it's digitizing, it's it's the story adopting to the local realities, right? Of you know, distribution and logistics and and existing you know, consumption patterns, I think is going to continue to emerge as a fascinating part of the story. Yeah, that's really fascinating. That overarching theme of just adopting to existing consumer trends, but just digitizing those existing consumer trends is is one that maybe even is particular or potentially even exclusive to more developing markets. You don't see that so much in developed markets, as it were. They tend to just get disrupted, uh, but it seems there's more Adopting to the I, I think that's I think that's it, and I a lot of it has to do with distribution infrastructure, right? I mean, you're seeing this in India, where having ten thousand retail stores, if you're if in the example of Reliance Industries, those become important parts of your distribution network for selling things uh, and getting them to consumers. So, digitizing that part of it is. I think it's it's one of the more fascinating things I think we're going to see continue to advance in the, in the next few years. And it bizarre in, in Pakistan in particular is, I think, emerging is at least to me the most interesting example of this. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, that's I think that's a really interesting idea to end on and for our listeners to watch out for. So that just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining me on the podcast, Kevin. It's been a real pleasure. Okay, thank you so much. Great to be here. and We'll look forward to talking soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. CoFruition.